Sidetrack. Welcome everyone to another exciting episode of Sidetrack. Today we are diving deep into the dynamic world of global, global politics and economics. The 21st century is shaping up to be a dynamic er- era of challenges on both the micro and macro scale of societies. And embracing these challenges and understanding these shifts are crucial to all of us. And that's right, which means for today we are asking the question of whether we are currently living through and witnessing the first changing world order of the 21st century. Ooh, we hope to provide our viewers with different and equally valuable perspectives for today's discussion, which means we have two new special guests with us today, Jacob and Thomas. Uh, hi, I'm Thomas. Uh, I, I'm a second year studying economics and international relations, and I do a bit of playfair, pool, bit, well, I've started to go to the gym, not consistently, <laughs> um, and I know uh, Jacob's my twin, and I knew Lewis from school, and I've just met, I've just met Yellow. I'm Jacob. Um... I am technically a third year in mathematics. I do a lot, a lot of theatre, which is great. Um, I'm part of the Students Association leadership in various capacities. And I am basically too busy, but I have known Lewis for a very long time. I've known Thomas for even longer and I have known Yella for a very short period of time, but I can't wait. Excellent. With these two esteemed guests, we're about to embark on a journey into... (laughs) The shifting sands. Esteemed. Esteemed. I'm not sure that's quite right, is it? (laughs) We're going to go with esteemed. Um, We're about to embark on a journey into the shifting sands of international relations, the rise of new powers and the complex challenges facing our rapidly changing world order. To begin with, do you think economics on a macro scale, i.e. between nations and continents, has an effect on everyone's day-to-day life? I think it's hard to judge because macro is such a a broad scale. But when you think about it, it it can be currency, it can be interest rates, taxation. It's it's effectively how much does someone have each day to spend and I think it's very important for a day-to-day life but it's just not noticed, it's not so discussed. I think, um, Thomas, you know this because you did economics with me in high school. For my <laughs> advanced higher project or dissertation, I did on economics and uh, economics of happiness, how economic developments and GDP growth actually affects people's happiness to a certain extent in which there's a threshold. If you pass that threshold, nothing changes with your happiness. And But before that threshold, GDP and economic growth does affect the individual's happiness. And... Obviously, GDP is is to measure gross domestic product is to measure a nation's wealth, and the fact that the nation's wealth can impact the individual's happiness is quite a fascinating concept. And I think that um, the reason why after a certain threshold nothing happens is because um, people are wealthy enough that money actually does not buy more happiness from them. To summarize, it's sort of the general point is that actually the economics of a country in a macro scale affect uh, the prices of I don't know anything let's just take the uk as an example currently i think the example everyone's going to be thinking of currently we're suffering massive inflation and we're suffering with a lot more increases in let's just take food prices for the average person this is a massive effect that's why we've seen such an increase in food banks and the new well sort of a new uptake or more significant uptake in support that is required from the government and from the state so of course, yes, it affects day to day life because if it does, because it's almost the one of the few things that will always affect day to day life. 
Would you say Brexit has impacted everyone's day-to-day -day life in the UK? Oh, I can't imagine. Yes. Um, I think as as an from an economic point of view, uh, well, yeah. also social point of view. and social, yeah. obviously. But yes, um, you've got as a result of the closing of borders and the change and uh, the lack of freedom of movement. That means people can't you know, go to university. You know, Erasmus has gone for us. Um, we're not able to go and study anywhere. You don't have to go and work anywhere. There's a lot less choice, and ultimately, as as, as people people have the best the best chance of doing well if they have choice um generally um but beyond that for economics speaking wise like we we have less trade because we have less countries to trade with and that's just classically a major issue i mean i don't mean to disagree with my brother but i do um the point in terms of the thing of to university and that sort of the choice i agree with the you know economic standpoint of trade and you know significantly more about it than i do and you never stop telling me that but basically your the point about university is whilst yes choice is the thing is actually brexit is now showing the exclusion of people in a lower sort of price bracket in a slower socio-economic situation people who it's not that you can't study anywhere you can study anywhere you might have to apply for a visa but it's more that actually the cost of it is the problem so brexit is not it's an issue of course for your lack of choice as you say but actually the fundamental issue is the fact that it costs so much more so actually this is affecting people in lower socio-economic backgrounds from achieving what they would like through opportunity that's not the same thing i think um that i think that i think it's that is perfectly fair but i think the the point i was more emphasizing was the fact that if you have less choice it, it doesn't matter how rich you are it doesn't it, it, like you you, know, you there will be more barriers for you if there are less choice that's the point i'm making oh, okay. yeah i'm not i'm not saying that you know is, i'm not saying that if you, this is just gonna be a battle between the yeah, brothers um but i think i think that's my point i think my point is more barriers are always worse because it gives people less choice and less opportunity oh, no matter what you oh i see what you mean i think so okay you just it, didn't listen i did listen it's just more that you were discussing barriers and choice but that's not all. That is not always the same thing. As an international student, Yala, did you feel the effect of Brexit on the cost or like anything that has like Britain changed? Um. Well, to be fair, I <coughs> I don't study politics or sorry, uh, econ or politics. Um, and it's not exactly my area of interest. Which is precisely why we have you here, because it's. Which is yeah. So I feel like I can I can I can probably come as like an outsider's perspective. Um. So I guess like the rise in food prices, I feel like that's a classic example for everyone, um, especially after after the global pandemic. I feel like it's risen so dramatically. Um, and I don't know, maybe is that just for the UK or is that also experienced in other countries? I think the UK was a little bit unfortunate on the timing, everything. The Brexit happened and COVID happened and Ukraine and Russia happened. So... Yeah, everything everything happened around the same time, and for Britain and island nation, they they very much rely on trade and exports uh, than imports. And the fact that the chain, the supply chain, has been disturbed through all these global events, uh, really just damaged the entire Britain systems. Um, not to mention the NHS system is on the verge of collapse. Yes, NHS. Yeah, yeah, I think. I think the issues that we are facing in the UK are 
not unique i think i think we've just had them more yeah i think it's just been the sort of worst or it's been more kind of i don't want to say emphasized but sort of exasperated or whatever the freaking word is it's you know we've gone from these problems actually could have been resolved it's just we i don't want to get overly political but maybe i'll just go into it for a second the fact that we've had five prime ministers in a sort of period of time and therefore a complete lack of stability in our political system i think is an indication of is i think a huge aspect of this is that the economy functions well unstable on being unstable on continuity and we've lost that with our current government i mean that that is all perfectly true but another really important aspect to look at is like the long-term um the long-term aspects of government policy um so you can look at it's not just the last you know year or two it's about you know under investment in the nhs under investment in public services um, you can go beyond and look at the the divides between the UK. You've got the, the 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 north and south divide in England. You've got Scotland and England having a divide a bit because of independence. You've got you're getting more Northern Irish potential independence again in Wales. You get Plaid Cymru increasing their support. And I think I think that's a really important aspect is that it's it's beyond just the Westminster government being difficult. So there is a Thomas, huge divide. Are you saying that the wound is there? The bleeding has have been happening always. But what happened after COVID is just like the, the wound was bigger and the bleed just became more and more. I think that I would even I would even say it's before this just opened up. Yeah, I would say basically even before COVID, I would say Brexit and even Scottish independence referendum in 2014, it highlighted these differences, these difficulties and like, yes, like a catalyst. But I think that they were emphasizing COVID because um, of how every government behaved very differently and everyone saw that and more than that um, because of the cost of living crisis at the moment people are not particularly caring about a lot of other things what they're caring about is can they buy bread and milk can they go to a doctor can they go to the school they want to and I think that's what the biggest issue is is that in all of the different devolved administrations and Westminster there is still an issue generally and it's it's hard to say it's just Westminster. I think it's a much longer difficulty which has come from everyone. I think that's also important to note. Um, thank you. I think that was really interesting how you brought up um, kind of the social divide, the social divide um, from, I guess, our recent political um, scene. And how, how do you think economics or like our trends in economics have have um, impacted the social divide between, I guess, like, class or regions? <laughs> this, is, this is a hard one. It's like... A, this is a hard one. As, a, as an economist, it's just a question you never never know. So it's very hard. I'm sure Lewis would agree as, um, you know, my economic partner for, for many years now. But um, the, the diff- economics should be about bridging the gap between inequality. However, it's incredibly hard to do that with it economic policy as it economic policy is usually very poor most of the time policy is not that effective and it's actually something which is really unknown like you behavioral economics is fascinating recently um for example a classic one would be plastic bags you know that 5p um increase like all that cost everybody didn't think as much like, like this, the nudge theory the well. nudge theory yeah it's, uh, like Plas- <laughs> the nudge theory. So this idea about nudging the people to do something, but that five pence, that meant plastic bag usage went down by about seventy-five percent in a year. It's really it's fascinating. like, for example, you're like, 
you notice how when you go to Tesco yesterday, it's the thirty first of October. You notice how the first thing you see is Halloween stuff. That's not true. They they show you the stuff that is most wanted around that time, and you'll pick them. So more expensive items are in the middle shelf rather than the bottom or the top shelf because your eyesight sees the middle shelf first. It's basically corporate manipulation. It is. It's, it's it behavior. Is, it just it's is, behavior. but it is behavioral it's, psychology. Yeah, that's about marketing as well. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's really. But then socially, the big thing about economics at the moment is that um, after COVID, what we saw was the rich got richer because. They were in professional careers where they were able to be online. Didn't matter they went in the offices, and sadly, the people in the lowest socioeconomic backgrounds, more in manufacturing, labour, um, you know, zero-hour contracts, they are more likely to. Sh- they were more likely to be fired or to be on furlough, and it meant that they were. It was harder for them to get back, and also COVID in some ways was wonderful for the economy because it changed how we dealt with it. It was like creative destruction by a shumter. You know, obviously. Uh, creative, creative destruction. Right. So very quick, very quick idea is it's effectively like it's, it's ba- yeah, it's a new replaceable. It's a big idea which changes it. So the big idea at the moment is online and hybrid working. And that's really changed the economy. And it's it's been probably a good thing to a degree. However, it's badly impacted those who own labor. And I think that's something which I think has been difficult. It's the change in the economic way we work. And I think that's causing a lot more divide. And more than anything else, cost of living is going up. Like meal deals are ridiculous now. I do. I will. Not, I. I'm so depressed by going and getting a three forty. And then, like you know, we all joke about the Freddo thing. Like Freddos have gone up a stupid amount, and it's really interesting because it is just, you know, if you put that all together, it's just. I mean, it's so hard, and the class and the class is divided. It's just so much more. It's just very tricky and the way to fix it I, I have not got a clue i am way not an expert on that but i think i think empathy is something which i wish there was sometimes a little bit more on in our government i think yeah i think that's all quite you know interesting i mean i think there are two things that i wanted to mention one thing is that thomas was right in saying that no no policy economic policy fixes all there is no cure-all for this sort of thing and let's just take two examples the the blair administration with brown as the you know chancellor of the exchequer you know did do a lot of you know funding basically they funded the nhs they added massive you know alan milburn created whole new systems of slight privatization basically but then take austerity in the you know in the you know, David Cameron years, and it's, you know, totally different. And whilst there were benefits to both, and I admit that some would disagree with me, th- there has been acknowledgement that there were benefits to both for some classes, and it depends on the way you look at it. But I think the other thing was, and it was something that actually I, I thought about when Yella responded when you talked about nudge theory, is that actually I think sometimes part of the issue is that people just don't understand why it's happening. Do you know what I mean? I think there's such kind of almost like this mysticism to what actually, what is the economy actually doing? And I think sometimes part of the divide and sometimes part of the issue is that if you kind of know what's going on, you can kind of figure out how you're going to act differently. As we talked about, macroeconomics does affect day-to-day life. If you understand that, you can change how your day-to-day life works to facilitate you having the best time with that. But I think because there is sometimes... And unfortunately, it does affect people in lower socioeconomic backgrounds because of the education system currently. But I think for the, because of that, people then don't adapt as much. And so we then see a greater divide. And that's partly because people don't understand what's happening. I, and I think that's sort of something that's not necessarily considered as much as the educational side of it. Do you think that's like a specific strategy, a governing strategy? Or is it just down to us not understanding things? <laughs> 
You know, I hate to say this, but sometimes communism is actually good. I was going to mention because we're talking about class divide. And would, okay, we're going to the question now. Do you think it is down to communism to eliminate all divides between class? The, the thing with different government bodies is obviously they're huge organization they're huge um professional bodies and it's hard for uh, for everyone to agree on certain topic uh, it's hard for everyone to um do something really quick like everyone needs to go through different processes and agree on certain topic before anything actually happens with the policies and uh, anything government related right voting for new prime minister and such um but whereas communism acts like a, a leader a single dictator can just decide on a policy right away really quick very efficient i'm not saying those policies are good or bad but <laughs> the policies happens and they do affect everyone who are living in that country um and right that just that just goes against the nature of communism having some sort of dictator the point is everyone's equal the thing is and i think this is the point the idea of marxism what he wrote actually doesn't sound that bad it kind of makes sense you know at the end of the day and in theory in theory it's wonderful in practice nobody has pulled it off and i think that's sort of part of it is there are things that just in theory make sense but that never will happen it's like in thermodynamics you will never like reach sort of less than something it's like theoretically yeah will it happen no so we i think we just have to acknowledge the fact that whilst it sounds lovely and the world would might be improved for it there are other things you can do. Proportional representation, I think, would be a step in the right direction. That's the sort of thing I would consider. Communism is a desire, and socialism, different forms of socialism, is is products. Absolutely, yeah. So, what do you think stands in the way between theory and practical? People. People. I'm sorry, it's human nature. It's it's it, it, it's the, de- the selfish desire. Yeah. Human it's, nature. It's, it's greed. Like. You you know if you if you see like the idea like the classic idea of communism is that you you go to a stall and you're given a certain proportion of a loaf of bread, and people will, like the classic idea is that somebody will just take the whole loaf because they can. Like it, I think it, you, there is always that that's always going to stop that. However, I do firmly believe it is a good idea to move towards more equality in terms of particularly economics class no, as in as in as in it's important to like always move yeah. to be like it's important to always try and close divides in what because in that's where the difficulties are lying at the moment and i don't think there's enough being done for it so do you mean equality in terms of um like the power we have over over our own politics or do you mean equality in terms of material goods um definitely equality over material goods but then i would also say for economic terms i think that yeah there is a lack of proportional power we we can send government we send an mp for example to westminster but proportional representation as jacob said is a much better system it's much more equal it's much more fair it means everyone's vote is respected in the same way but fundamentally you know if you have a government and a parliament you have to accept that your some of your decisions are out of your hands but that doesn't mean we can't do more it doesn't mean we can't have councils having more power i i mean it's very hard though because why where do you stop trying to get give people power um i think i'm just going to go back to the association and communism back i think <laughs> i think it's through history talking about communism. i know through history the the peak of socialism and what China did in history in terms of economics cannot be achieved by any other 
methods of politics. Like in such a short time, being able to pull off economic growth that is. You mean from like the two thousands kind of from the nineteen eighties when Deng Xiaoping. Oh right, yeah. Nineteen eighties to twenty tens, right? That area of that era of growth. I have to agree with you on that. Was incredible. Is not achievable by any nations at that scale. Um, China is already big by itself, and in order to achieve something this big and unite a lot of people in that sense, is is really difficult. I totally agree. My ironically, similar as you said, your adva- my advanced higher history essay was on communism um, oh. in the Soviet Union, and I did talk about China. Oh, excellent, great, so, yeah, cool. Um, I think I I think that the growth itself is extraordinary, and no one would ever doubt that. However, I would argue. Just a tad about the communism point because I don't think it was proper. There's、communism. a lot of byproducts alongside. Yes. Yes. That. yes, I think that I would say that the growth is extraordinary, but I would say that it isn't. I would say that it was. It was the rapid industrialization,、mm-hmm. and I would say that is partly communist ideology, but that is also quite a capitalist ideology. It's about growth, and it's. I I can't decide which it is. I can't decide if it's capitalist or communist. But I would say that it's very important to.、Uh, Point out, I think like the, the growth is extraordinary, and I mean, in our economics lectures, I think we look at China almost every week because it is such an extraordinary thing to look at. So yeah. Well, I'm excellent. The economic growth was so strong, but I wonder what the cost was. You know, I don't, I don't know a lot about that area or that area of time, but I do suspect, or it's conceivable to imagine, that there were moral questions or things that could have been done. Not so well.、Um, I again don't know that well, but I I have a suspicion that it almost sounds too good to be true, and maybe <laughs> and maybe there might be another side to this that isn't considered as much like I don't know death. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bear in mind we have a、uh, two. Chi- well, I mean, actually, it's just one Chinese person. No, 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 we consider two、podcast. Chinese. Yeah. Okay, yeah, but um, moving on. <laughs> So,、um, we talked about kind of the, I guess the policies that is a bit of a mix between communism and did you say capitalism? And、um, could you go into that a bit more, as in like, you know, like what exactly what policies they had?、Um, because I know it's a bit of a mixture, but I I don't know the the specifics, I guess. So, from my very limited knowledge,、mm-hmm. um, what I would say is one of the, the a very key aspect was rapid industrialization. The concept of, particularly in agriculture,、um, um, it was about rapidly industrializing in there, like、uh, machinery, that kind of technology, and then、um, also rapidly industrializing urban areas. And a big part of it is to take people, well, not take, to migrate from rural to. Urban. That was a huge aspect of communism. That is a huge aspect of it. Well, any、um, country's growth, yeah, the most important part is railway systems. Yeah. yeah. Yes, infrastructure is fundamentally the key to economic growth. If you can't, if you can't get a truck of of、uh, I don't know computer chips from one side to the other, you 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 can't build the computers. So yes, um, but the, that's why there's a big question on whether or not it's communist or capitalist, or probably more more would be better to say socialist, because. 
um, in it was a communist in Asia, but in practice, it was hard not to be socialist because you still needed to grow. China still needs to grow. It had a, it's they a huge have to open up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and so though the market reforms were very important. And I think that you can say probably or, or originally after the revolution, it was more communist. However, recently, there's had to be more market led reform, which is probably which is a good thing. They are choosing key sectors, you know, uh, Shenzhen, Shanghai. Uh, Beijing, Tianjin, all the key port cities, sectors, and the stock market opened up, um, ex- exports opened up. The reason why China is not considered a de- developed nation right now is because GDP, GDP per capita is still low, uh, high, population is very high. Also, the fact that the entire GDP growth is relied on exports and um, it, real estates and such is not what a developed developed country have. Developed country relies on consumer goods and products uh, for their GDP, uh, especially on services, a lot on services. The service-focused economy instead of the, um, what's the word? Production, manufacturing. That's sort of the manufacturing focus. And and that's what the, and that's sort of what they need to transition to a bit more. And I mean, you know, and that's sort of what's, and that, but that's been acknowledged by economists for, I mean, probably decades now or, or a decade let's say at least so it's, it's this is not a new idea i think it's in part down to the fact that there's so i mean and it you know there's so many people in china there's so many you know the population is so massive that that transition would not be i mean obviously not easy but it'd be near impossible to achieve it without some problems but like all economic growth people prosper from it uh, everyone prosper from it like America back in the day, when they had their uh, industrialization and revolutions, a lot of people pro- um, profited and uh, gained something from it. Uh, just like just like this, China also, a lot of investors went to China, a lot of American firms went to China, a lot of neighboring countries around China experienced their growth alongside with China. And I think China back in that time, uh, that 2010s, 1990s, 2000s era, um, it really does influence the entire East Asia, uh, maybe even South Asia some some some, some extent, and um, a lot of countries prospered from Chinese manufacturings, and yeah. I, th- I think the other thing that China is starting to do, in a sense, is I think they're in some ways opening themselves up to the idea of having some better relationships with some countries, some worse relationships with some countries. Don't get me wrong, but. I think in terms of like you know the United States and stuff like they do seem to be trying to be a bit more I dare I say neutral with things is the case of the fact that number one global power and number two global power are always a constant struggles because yeah. one does number one one does number two they all want to be number one I mean, they want to stay number one I mean, there's a re- there is a reason why this period of time I retract my statement about America actually um there is a peri- there is a reason why this period is being described by some historians although they're obviously not quite historians yet um as the second cold war because it is it's the two global superpowers one and again and ironically well not ironically but you know as the same as previously it's it's sort of communism or socialism let's say versus the extreme capitalism but i mean i i think that's all fair but what what i'll be curious about because in the cold war what happened was you know the u.s triumphed arguably the soviet union collapsed and then the new power, then a new power developed, which was China. My question would be: Is is that going to happen yet? Is there going to be a new power? A lot of people say India, because of their their population growth is huge and their economic growth is more than China nowadays. Uh, they grow quicker. Um, but then again, or will it be something different? Will it be 
a new power or a new group will it be the eu becomes the next thing i mean i think that's always a really big question is how are power shifts changing and there is change going on at the moment you know russia is on the world stage more than ever before arguably because obviously because of ukraine but like it's very important to take into an aspect like how the, the power shifts are changing i mean look back in history power shifts happens constantly the most recent one you can consider japan and u.s relations back in the day japan was number two in global economic policy in the 1970s and 80s and japan was prospering a lot uh, and boosted by some chinese influences when china started growing as well and i think the fact that china, japan failed due to real estate they failed quick it was a quick transition into over oh, number two but oh our real estate just collapsed and that leads to a lot of impacts onto employment because they have an employment system in which when you graduate you actually have a job a single job for your entire life is a one job system and when that thing just collapsed just one year collapsing it means a lot of people does not have the job and and then it's just a snowball effect onto following on following following on years and then and then japan loses economic power from his second position real quick after that and i think i hope that china is not on the same trajectory but if you look at the current events of what's happening in china with real estate is is beginning to have a similar image um sorry before we go into how those power shifts between different countries i'm just a bit confused i guess um as to how do we define like you know the most powerful country in the world is that down to employment rates is that down to gdp um or is it like thoughts um material production or a combination of I, that? I have a sense my brother may jump in at this point as i know it's something he knows quite a bit about um so it's it's a it's a really hard question to answer power is any is is a very it, there are a number of different IR theorists, obviously, is what I'm going to talk about, have a lot of different views. Um, the, the two classic, three classic ways of looking at it is one is military. If you've got the biggest military, you, you're going to win. Very valid view. I'm not entirely convinced of it, and I'll explain why in a second. You then have economic power. The most economically powerful is going to be the strongest. Again, pretty valid view. I, I, I have more to agree with that one, but I have a bias because I study economics. And then the final one is actually more than anything is like who are your allies who 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 if you were to go into conflict who would be there with you because like you may be a very small nation but if you've got the u.s on your side you're all right you know i what think I mean? altogether is the concept of influence of yeah. a nation yeah. it's the power over you know if you have a strong military you're gonna have the power over stuff because you people won't attack you you can do you can get away with more basically if you have economic power you have power over um imports exports and countries rely on you and if you are, have a good alliances, you have more likelihood of growing quicker because of those alliances. If I would say it's not one. I think it's all of them combined are a very important aspect to how you define power or powerful nations. So US, very strong economically, very strong military, very good alliance. China, pretty similar as well nowadays. So that's why they're the most powerful at the moment. But it's stemmed, I would argue, from economics and their economic growth is why they attract alliances. And they have such a strong military power. Well, you would say that. Um, I think, to an extent, I think what Thomas said about all three being right, uh, being sort of as a collective, the, you know, what is power, I think that's probably true. I think the only thing I would say is that, well, on one side, I think also there's this kind of understanding of, I think the most powerful nation also, part of it has to come down to respect. 
Whether it's respect because your economy is actually exceptionally strong, whether it's respect because your military is scary, whether it's and there can there is a space respect based on fear and there is respect based on intelligence, but there's also sort of respect based on general moral strong like strength. You know, you know, take, I would say the Scandinavian countries are probably the best example at the moment. A lot of people really stand by the Scandinavian countries and are a big fan of them because actually, you know, they can go to them and be neutral. I mean, that's what I mean. Isn't that why they I mean, Russia and America went to Finland, didn't they? To, you know, Putin and Trump went to Finland to discuss issues because actually they. Putin and Biden, I knew that. Um, I sound like Biden when I say that. Um, but it's like, in that sense, you know, they can be relied upon to be neutral. It was the same with the Vatican for, well, it is the same with the Vatican for a while. You know, there's lots of that sort of thing. So I think part of it is also this kind of moral strength. And I think that does play into part of most powerful. I don't think it's the major reason. I think, I actually think the major reason is probably allyship. And that's why, you know, NATO is still such a significant part of this world. But yeah, I think, yeah, good point. I think the easiest, one of the easiest way to look at it is, I agree with everything that's being said, is also just influence in culture influence, pop culture influence in, like you compare the influence of America to the world, like in their TV shows, in their movies, in their games, in their um, music, pop culture, celebrities, and you compare that to to Chinese influences. Do people, do the people in the West understand Chinese celebrities, understand Chinese culture? Do they understand Chinese um, video games, Chinese music, Chinese anything? Uh, Chinese food, right? Um, no, there's not much influence on that. And for a country to have, one of the strongest Eastern countries to have such a huge influence in recent time is Japan. Um, in, in food, 20 years ago, no one eats sushi. Who eats raw fish, you know? And Korea as well. The K-pop, the K-drama, all the influences in terms of pop culture, pop culture and such, yeah. Anime as well, yeah, J-pop, K-pop. That's, that's, I think, I was actually, I, if Lewis wasn't going to mention Korea, I was probably going to shout at him, but then that, that sort of did happen quietly. But I think, I think that's totally right. Like, the cultural side to it is that, you know, and, that, and that's all what happened in the States, right? You know, when you think about it, Russia decided to close off, they didn't speak to anyone, bad and then the united states you know entered this age of kind of pop culture and movies and you know hollywood and all that sort of stuff and then and then everyone was kind of like, oh, well actually you know we quite like the look of america because it looks a lot more fun than what what was the soviet union um so i think that's kind of does play into a part of it i think again lesser extent but it's, it's something to be considered i think that kind of because also it's like it's like nobody really knows about like Liechtenstein. do you know what i mean nobody knows about them and they're not really a powerful nation but you know, a small nation can be powerful. Like the Vatican is a powerful nation because they, everybody knows them because of their ability, because they are highly regarded and they are in, well, they're regarded in some way or another and they're in pop culture. So it's like, I think, I think that does play a part of it. Absolutely. That's very interesting, actually, this like cultural export of Asian countries or any countries in general, really, to kind of gain the respect of other countries around the world most important like issue in east asia right now is demographic shift asian population asian population is a huge concern in east asia and youth employment in the rest countries rest of the countries like europe and such is also very important and what do you guys feel about that and there there are less there's much less employment employment and a lot less children people are not giving birth as much the baby booms over you know what i mean right, right. like um, um thank you it is, yeah <laughs> it's sort of it's one of those weird ones but like, i would see i'd like to specify that it's i, w- I like because i wonder whether it's actually this is sort of a question of 
it's a general question about overpopulation. It's now the lack of industry, not the lack of industry, the lack of ability to enter things because there's just, just not enough, you know, space, you know. And part of that is because, and the example of, you know, um, there are more older people and therefore people are having to pay for it, so pensions and stuff. And we've seen that in the UK with the, you know, triple lock pension and stuff. And it's like by the end, by the, the, but when we as a group end up having pensions, we're going to get like, I don't know, a penny and a pass on the head. It's like, we're not going to get anything. We'll get a very expensive Freddo. We'll get a very expensive Freddo. Exactly, you know. So part of it is that the issue we're seeing is this is widespread and, and no, no government seems to have really figured out how to deal with this. At least I don't know of. Um, but in terms of the stuff with Asia, it's sort of like, it's it's difficult because obviously people who are older is like, you know, great, cool, they've lived. But also they do in a, in a very kind of mathematical dehumanizing way, they take away from the economy. And that's just the fact of it. But, but this is not a problem unique to Asia. I think this is a general overpopulation issue that which has not been discussed the un did just try and discuss it a few like i think about a decade ago and sort of it basically was kind of vetoed um if i'm rightly the the vatican came in and sort of said as with other religious states and said no we don't want to talk about this because it goes against everything sort of morally and whether you agree with that or not that doesn't matter but it it hasn't been discussed and it's something that the world has to consider now but focusing on asia in particular um the, the demographic shifts are are huge um, it, it more noticeable than anywhere else because of you know if you have China they've got what 1.8 billion people I mean that's like we're in Scotland right we have no idea what that can <laughs> feel, what that feels like right you've got you know India at you know 1.5 or something potentially close to we there's a lot of people in that area and that that is a huge difficulty for that those areas um there's huge amounts of migration there there's um in there, there are in there are in. It's just very tricky. It's very hard to find a job. It means there's lots of migration out of China and India and Korea and Japan. And actually, I think that's a major issue, and that's where the demographic shifts are stemming from. But I think that it's very important to also say that this is happening all over the world. But there could be something to be done. I just don't know what it is. I'm sure someone smarter with me will figure it out one day. Might just maybe maybe AI. Maybe AI. <laughs> another another way to think about this is. Uh, it doesn't affect us. We're going to die anyway. In a morbid way. Thank you very much, Lewis. Always keeping it light. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's, it's yeah, it is an important point, but it, it's sort of all of these issues get down to the fact that these are long-term issues, problems that we are not going to solve, but will need to be solved, but we may not be here to have to deal with the severe consequences of them. Yes, exactly. Things like climate change, um, sustainability. Um, yeah, I guess. Okay, well, that was a very. <laughs> that was very interesting. That was yeah, a very interesting conversation. Um, it was basically me throwing big questions. That's at, good. That's good. At econ bros. <laughs> um, but yeah, we. I think sometimes we just have to accept that you know we, yeah. as much as we can think, as much as we can discuss, there's. I don't think there's much that we can do as individuals um, and it might not be like the timing. But then it's the concept right. of and you just start with that individual. Oh, mm. uh, okay. Dun, dun, dun. Martin Luther King. Anyway, and that, uh, dear listeners, bring us to the end of this thought-provoking episode. We'd like to extend our heartfelt gratitude to our guest, Jacob and Thomas, for sharing the, their um, expertise with us today. Uh, I'd like to say uh, thank you very much for inviting us on. It's, 
really fascinating actually i haven't had such a long conversation uh economics for really nice i know uh yeah thanks very much and um i mean this is a great podcast but also it was probably one of the most cerebral conversations i've had and that was so so much fun and would love to do it again sometime yeah i have definitely learned a lot um so we're witnessing the transformation of the world order right before our eyes and we hope this episode has sparked your curiosity and encouraged you to explore further until next time keep learning keep exploring and keep questioning the world around you this is yella and lewis signing off bye, bye. bye. <laughs>